Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special episode of the Tasty Pints and Open Minds podcast. Today, it's not going to be Jack and I who are doing the interview. Today, we have a special guest host, Dr. Joseph Schwab. Dr. Joseph Schwab is the chief of the Orthopedic Spine Center at Mass General Hospital. He's the director of spine oncology and a co-director for the Stephen L. Harris Cordoma Center. He's an orthopedic surgeon, but he's also an associate professor of orthopedic surgery at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Schwab is joined today by his longtime friend, Dr. Mitchell Harris, a fellow orthopedic surgeon at Mass General Hospital. Dr. Harris is the chief of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery, and he's an orthopedic trauma surgeon, as well as a professor of orthopedic surgery at Harvard Medical School. Today, the two of them talk about their journey to where they are now. They talk about how they became chief. They talk about how they got to Mass General, why orthopedics, their background, and much, much more. We have advice for students. We have advice for prospective students. We have advice for residents. They talk about how to be a good leader, how to become the chief, and a lot more. They do a deep dive into the advances of orthopedic surgery and what they see in the future, including virtual reality in the training rooms and AI machine learning. Now, this is only part one of the episode. Part two is actually going to be loaded up as a separate link. Part two is where Jack and I will step in and we'll host Dr. Mitchell Harris for a round of questioning from a medical student perspective. We also have a small crowd today who joined us and we'll field some questions from them so that we get a wide variety of questions for Dr. Harris to talk about. So make sure to stick around for part two. Again, that will be a separate episode. That one, we have a lot more advice. We have hard-hitting questions. We get to the nitty-gritty, but we also like to make it entertaining for you guys, so there are some fun questions at the end. I think you guys are going to really enjoy this interview. So without further ado, here are Dr. Joseph Schwab and Dr. Mitchell Harris. Welcome, Mitch. Traditionally in our podcast, we like to ask our guests a little bit about their, their background. Um, where, where are you from originally? Born and raised in Chicago, a small part of Chicago called East Rogers Park, so right off of the Lake Michigan area. And uh, your parents, I mean, you and I have spoken about this in the past. Tell, tell me a bit about your parents. We are at literally third-generation Midwesterners. My parents grew up in Chicago. My grandparents both were from the U.S. and then Eastern Europe, preceding that. And you have a, you have a brother? I have an older brother who still lives in the city of Chicago, was formerly the mayor of a small town outside of Chicago called Deerfield. And uh, we have a small family, just he and I. He's still there. He's got several kids, one in Chicago, one in New York, and one in San Francisco. And growing up in Rogers Park, you excelled in, in athletics. You were a wrestler, if I uh, recall correctly, and a football player, among others. I excelled in very few things. <laughs> Um, but sports like wrestling and football, which weren't skill-based, but temper-based and things like that were things that I seemed to, you know, do well in. So, What was your, your first introduction to orthopedics? Well, like many people who follow the track into orthopedics, I was introduced to orthopedics by a sports-related injury. I dislocated my shoulder in a high school football game. And normally they're able to be reduced in the field and they couldn't get my shoulder back. So I was brought into a local emergency room where I was literally accosted by an orthopedic surgeon telling me what an idiot I was to play such a violent sport. Meanwhile, my shoulder was dislocated. I was in pain. I was whining and this and that. 
he gave me a shot of morphine and reduced my shoulder and it was like the first opioid it was unbelievable my shoulder was back in place i had this little morphine thing and i said i'm going to be an orthopedist <laughs> and you you'd had a a pretty significant injury other than the dislocated shoulder that did change some of the path of your life yeah about a week before i was uh, going to attend college i broke my neck and it was a you know it was a diving accident in a small lake in Wisconsin. And um, I was with a couple buddies. I went to retrieve a ski and hit a rock under the water, came out of the water, obviously no paralysis or anything, but I had a cut on my head and a sore neck. So just sort of instinctively, I put a towel around my neck and my buddies got me back on the boat and then, believe it or not, dropped me off at the pier, proceeded to do a little bit more water skiing, and then came back to gather me uh, to go back uh, home. And we routinely stopped at an A&W root beer place on the way home. We were sober. I want that on record. We were all sober during this incident. We stopped at an A&W root beer place, and everybody got their appropriate meals, and then we headed back. I was laying down in the back seat because I was really hurting at this point. Got home, and... My parents took a look at the cut on my head and realized I'd probably need some stitches. So we finished the meal, went to the hospital to get stitches, and the emergency room said, how did this happen? And I said, well, I dove and hit my head. And they said, why don't we just take an x-ray to make sure everything's okay? Okay. They come back and they said, all right, don't move. You have a broken neck and you could be paralyzed. And I said, I, I just drove 90 miles from, had a meal at home. I'm, I'm fine. They said, oh, no don't move. And they put me in traction and I was in the hospital for seven weeks in traction. Seven weeks. 49 days. I can tell you the hours at that point because I was 17 <laughs> and it was miserable. Yeah. And that, that affected you. You were planning on playing uh, football at, at Washington University at that right, time. Right. And that sort of changed the trajectory a bit. That changed everything. I went from the small school, which I had really fallen in love with, to going down to University of Illinois at Champaign and just keeping my head in the books and trying to get into med school. At that point, I sort of realized, you know, I, I was interested in sciences and I, I had pretty good grades and between the shoulder and this, and I just said, you know, this is kind of a cool area and that's when I really started. The other sort of fun story was when I was in the hospital, everyone was always bringing me books to read because what else do you do when you're in traction in the hospital? And so one of the books was about law school. And it was the first year of law school in Harvard, and it was called 1L, Scott Turow. And I remember reading this and clearly eliminated legal system from my career. So, again, it pushed me more, much more towards medicine. And not to mention the fact that the Chicago Bears stopped calling you after that injury, right? That you <laughs> no longer being a member right. of their team. Where did you go to medical school? University of Illinois. In, in Chicago. In Chicago. Yeah, yeah, which is, of course, where my father went to, to uh, medical school. There's a lot of overlap between uh, our lives in terms of where our, our families were from and, and also some of our previous occupations. The, uh, for those of you that don't know it, for a while I, I worked on uh, Division Street in Chicago at a, at a place called Butch McGuire's, which about 10 or 15 years earlier, uh, Mitch worked at, a, at a, a place right across the way. Yeah, I worked at a, a bar and restaurant literally right across the street from Butch McGuire's during med school. And it was a great thing because it was mindless. And within three months, I was the senior bartender after having only poured uh, some beers at, uh, at in college. So I had a little Rolodeck in that, those days. And 
you'd write down the drinks that people ordered and describe what they were because, you know, there weren't bar certificates at that point. So it was a great way to make some money. It was not too far from the med school, and it was mindless and great social. At that same time, he lived in on Fremont Street uh, near Armitage, the Cross Street's Armitage, and it turns out that's where I lived when I was in medical school. Uh, so there's a there's a lot. And then my sister lived up in, or I lived in Rogers Park for a short while. Anyway, it's interesting, uh, um, interesting history. What really pushed you into orthopedics uh, during medical school? So I, I started getting really excited about trauma, trauma surgery. And I was at, at University of Illinois. We did quite a few of our rotations at a, a big county hospital, Cook County Hospital. And so I spent a lot of my clinical years there. And I just found myself increasingly more attracted to the problems that came into the emergency room as opposed to other conditions that were more elective. So I like the idea that it's broken, we can fix it. It's cut, we can sew it up. And so I followed the trend of uh, trauma. I think, you know, in, in those days, I spent some time at Cook County. My Both my parents spent time at Cook County. And it's the type of place, that, there was a television show called ER, I think in the, in the 90s. And that was based on, uh, or loosely based on Cook County. And they really are understaffed, or at least they were understaffed. And so they needed medical students to do a lot more. And so a lot of people had their career paths affected significantly during their time as medical students at Cook County because they were asked to do a lot. They were vital members of the team. At least that was my experience. Yeah, and, and in many cities, there are still these large county-level hospitals, whether it's Grady Hospital in Atlanta or the old Bellevue in New York City, L.A. County in L.A., some of the big medical trauma centers in Houston, Chicago. So all the big cities all had county-related hospitals where they were completely dependent on med students and junior trainees to be fully integrated. And uh, from from UIC, you ended up in Dartmouth for residency. So quite a change, quite a change, going to rural New Hampshire from, from uh, Chicago. Yeah, that was really eye-opener. I, I just, I would have gone anywhere to get into orthopedics. You know, once I recognized how much I wanted it, it, it didn't really matter where I would go. And in those days, it's not as competitive as now, but it was quite competitive. So anywhere you got interviews and anywhere you were interested, you really went. I was quite certain I would never leave Chicago and then ended up matching uh, at Dartmouth. And the way it used to be is you would rank both an internship match and a residency match because they weren't linked at that point. And Dartmouth had a starting spot in the second year. So even if you didn't match, you'd have an opportunity to still get into that. And so I ended up matching for Cook County for my internship and then Dartmouth for my residency, which was no two places could be more polar extreme than Cook County Hospital and Hanover, New Hampshire. <laughs> and and during your time in in uh, at Dartmouth, you also started to develop uh, relationships with other orthopedic surgeons, uh, particularly at University of Pittsburgh. You developed some friendships. Tell us about that. About how how that formed. Yeah, it was really funny. Um, you know, orthopedics, like all of medicine, is a very small world, and one of the interns that uh, was at Dartmouth was spending two years at Dartmouth and then progressing on to do their residency at Pittsburgh. And I got to be very friendly with her. We used to run together quite a bit, and then she moved on to Pittsburgh. And so during one of our academy meetings, she was now in orthopedics, I was in orthopedics, she said, why don't you come over and join us at a Pittsburgh orthopedic party? And I don't know how many of you are familiar with Hanover, New Hampshire. It's a, it's a lovely place, but it's not known for its partying environment. And here I was with the small little residency, and then I went and met 
her and her friends at Pittsburgh and realized that for the last four years, it was a lot of partying that I'd missed out on. <laughs> and and this is where you met Kirkwood and, and uh, Mark Barris, among others. Yeah, so they were all in the same class as me. And then the coincidence of all this was Mark Varis and I ended up matching into the same trauma program in Toronto ha- after having met very coincidentally at this party in, in Atlanta. And Kirk and I subsequently became quite good friends, too. So they had a miraculous class there, and I got to know them early on. Toronto, of course, is, is internationally known for many things in orthopedics and, and trauma at the, at the forefront. So you were in Toronto, had outstanding training in trauma, but also in spine. Right. In, in, in those days, trauma wasn't quite as comfortable a subspecialty because it, it hadn't really developed into a, a full organized subspecialty. It was very early in its professional trajectory. And so they often suggested to you, if you're doing trauma, pick a second area because when you're burned out of trauma, you want to make sure you have a more elective practice. And it's very common when you have a polytrauma patient that oftentimes you need the spine surgeon, as you know, to okay it before you head off. And I kept saying, why why do we have to wait for a spine surgeon? Why can't we just move on? And so I said, well, why don't somebody do trauma and spine? And that way they don't have to wait for anybody. They come down, they see what's going on, and they can clear the spine. And that was my original interest. So in Toronto, I did spine and trauma. And then I was fortunate enough several years later to have a second opportunity to do the combination in the UK at, uh, at Queen's Medical Center. So you were one of the the pioneers of dual training. Uh, uh, <laughs> Can never have too much training. <laughs> sort of remedial training is another way to look at it. But exactly. the, the, uh, the <laughs> and after Toronto, where 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 was your your first uh, job? So I, actually, I went from Toronto straight down to New Orleans. And again, this is an area that all trainees think about and worry about, and 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 really. It's a big decision. How do you make that decision? And so like all of us at that point, put up our spreadsheets of positives and negatives and this and that. And and ultimately, my attraction to Toronto was the combination of this really nice trauma program and this really nice spine program. What I do like to mention all the time is we make all these decisions based on the data we have. It turns out the most important part of that decision was I met my wife-to-be in Toronto still married to her. And that wasn't part of our initial check and minus, meet your wife versus not meet your wife. But you see what happens when, you, when you're prepared. And so she, she grew up in Toronto. Yep. And yet she agreed to follow you down to New Orleans. Hesitantly. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, w- when I finished in Toronto, she was still up in Toronto. And so for the first year and a half, we had this wonderful, let's meet at this meeting, let's meet at this city, let's do this. And finally, we decided it would be a good idea to be in the same country and maybe even the same city to see if we could get along enough. And, and sure enough, we did. So working at, at in New Orleans, that must have been quite a, quite a challenge, a lot of need there. Yeah. So New Orleans reminded me exactly of Cook County. There's a hospital system that's still in existence in Louisiana called the Charity Hospital System. And it's based on the fact that they have such a tiered uh, health care system there that the people that don't have health care are funneled to charity. And charity is staffed primarily by teaching hospitals. So you have both the high end and the low end. So I went down there knowing at that time, there was very few spine trained orthopedic surgeons. And literally at that time, there were no trauma trained orthopedic surgeons in in the city of New Orleans. So I went down there thinking, 
I have a little bit of training on everybody, but really it was, you know, learned by fire. It was a lot of reps, very under-resourced, great people, decent system. How long were you, were you in New Orleans? Ten years. And then to Winston-Salem. Right. So the deal with my now wife was to let's see how things work out in New Orleans, and then we can decide whether this is somewhere we're passing through or somewhere. And just like here, when you get things going in a really good way, you, you keep making those distances shorter. You say, let's see how things are the next 18 months. Let's just give this another couple years. Oh, if we only do this, it'll be great the next year. And it turned out to be 10 years. And then what happened was we had been married at this point. We had a couple kids at this point. And I was having a real difficulty finding that balance of work life and home life. And Literally, I wouldn't see my kids from Sunday to Thursday because I'd be working early in the morning. I'd come back, they'd be sleeping, and I'd say to my wife, hey, how was it? She goes, you know, you might want to spend some time with your kids and get to know them. So at this point, I started realizing those subtle hints were no longer subtle hints, and I was a little bit leaning towards too much professional work. And at the same time, several of my close colleagues in the same departments, I had looked at other jobs and moved on. So suddenly that party that was fun and exciting and next 18 months was getting a little bit lonelier now. So we uh, we moved to Wake Forest in uh, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, another tremendous healthcare system, really big trauma program in a very family-oriented environment. So we look back at it now as our little pause and our reset because we were there for three years, had a great time, but recognized we needed a bigger urban area for our own comfort, her growing up in Toronto and me in Chicago. And then you were reunited with, with uh, your, your colleagues from the University of Pittsburgh. Right. So Dr. Varis and I did fellowship together. When, he, when we both finished, he took a job at Hershey in Penn State, and I went down to New Orleans. And then for the next year or two, I would encourage him to consider moving down to New Orleans. It only took me sending him some of the films that I was, you know, some of the x-rays of pelvic and acetabular fractures that I wasn't very good at to convince him that he could come down and immediately be the master of his own domain down there. He came down for several years and then was recruited with several Pittsburgh members up to the Boston area. And two years later, he convinced me to move back up to Boston. So you came up to, you when you, when you first came to Boston, you were both at the Brigham, but also at Mass General. I had credentialed at both places, but my job was basically to be at the Brigham and to be the spine guy and the trauma guy. There were a couple spine surgeons already at the Brigham, but they weren't very academic, very busy clinically, and uh, the department there really wanted to turn it into a bit more of an academic practice. So both trauma and spine were my uh, responsibility at that point. And during your time at, at, the, at the Brigham, you, you obviously did a lot of different things and, and had a, a very large research effort. And, you know, in fact, much of your research effort stimulated uh, subsequently my research effort, as you know well, and, and particularly in the areas of spinal metastases and also in, in the management of spinal infections, in particular uh, epidural abscesses. And, you know, what, what, no, there wasn't a heck of a lot of research done in these areas, at least not at the, at the level that you were doing prior to that. What, what was your interest in them? This is the recipe for any good research. I didn't know the material, so I would get consulted on epidural abscess, or I'd get consulted on spinal metastases, and I would start thinking, should I operate on this? Should it be radiated? It doesn't need an operation at all, and I, and I couldn't find 
really good answers for a lot of these things. And so we started looking at our own past history there and then how to go forward and recognize that, as you said, the literature was not very robust in those areas and the literature that was there was quite outdated. In fact, you'll appreciate this because I had a consult at Mass General when I was still early on, and it was with an epidural abscess in the lumbar spine. And so I went and saw the patient, and the patient had a very little ridiculous component to it. But in the chart, in the paper chart, someone had copied the New England Journal of Medicine spinal epidural abscess classic paper, which basically said, when you make this diagnosis, you must rush to surgery. And I'm sitting there looking at this person and saying, doesn't seem like they need surgery. And then I go to the chart and it was pretty clear the consulting service thought they needed surgery right away. So it was things like that that just helped catalyze my interest. And then ultimately the spine mets and spine tumors was just incredible because we were right next to Dana-Farber. So it was just nonstop. When they recognized I was interested, they, they just kept feeding me. You know, it's interesting because the, there are two outsized papers, historic papers in epidural abscesses, and they both come from Boston. And one was from the, the Boston City Hospital, which uh, eventually became Boston University. Um, and they, the other one was, was out of Mass General, but they combined some of the data. And they combined some of the data, or the patients, because there were so few epidural abscesses. And of course, this is in the day, the first study uh, on this was really when antibiotics were starting to come out. So their study was pre-antibiotics and post-primary you know, primary antibiotics. And, and then this, the follow-up study was, was in the New England Journal, as you point out, prior to CT scans, prior to MRI, and you're seeing this patient, and they did terribly. But many, many people still point to that New England Journal article that you got to operate on these people right now. And I think your, uh, your article it was, I don't know if it was the first, but certainly one of the first, and certainly the, the largest series, that would suggest that you don't necessarily have to operate on all of these patients. Um, but if you go to a conference even now, many people will disagree with you, and they'll go back to that New England Journal paper. But it's really quite interesting you know, how, how much of an influence that has had. The onus goes back on the surgeon uh, more so than ever. To, to, it's much, much harder, in my opinion, to uh, with, withhold an operation than it is to operate on something. I don't know what, what you think about yeah, that. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And, you know, the interesting thing about all these things is as we evolve, even the data I had compared to how you've looked at it now allows us to more clearly identify when you absolutely should versus when it's okay to wait. And I, I still think anytime it's involved around the cord, we're very hesitant to wait for something to happen. Whereas when it's down in the cauda and lower, we're much more comfortable. And that, and that was really the, the genesis of it. It was in the lower lumbar spine. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite interesting. I was recently at a conference and there was a lot of discussion about the management of multiple myeloma in the spine, particularly with high-grade spinal cord compression. And there was a case a few years ago presented in conference, high-grade spinal cord compression. And the lector asked who, who would operate on this. And I said, well, I'm not really sure I might operate on this. And almost got laughed out of the room by, because everybody felt like, of course, you just radiate that. And certainly that can work. But we're, we're, there was something about it that didn't completely sit with me because I knew that I've seen patients who've deteriorated with, uh, even during radiation. And so we've now subsequently looked that up. And clearly, most people you can treat with radiation, but not all of them. And some people have a catastrophic failure in that setting. So we still don't have all the answers. I certainly still don't have the answers. But um, whenever I'm in a situation where somebody thinks that they know the absolute uh, answer, it makes me think clearly we don't know the answer. Well, you know, another good example of that was I never knew when you should embolize 
tumors around the spine or not. I knew renal cell and I knew thyroid because notoriously these were very vascular. So when I first started doing these, I'd get in there, I'd be like, I thought it wasn't supposed to be so vascular. It's bleeding all over. And myeloma was one of those that oh, was yeah. very vascular. So we did a series of like a hundred embolizations before spinal tumor resections to start recognizing that MRIs are a little bit more helpful than just, you know, our notorious understanding of it. And also comparing MRI findings to the embolization findings. So again, if you don't know and you start doing research, you start, your eyes open up a lot of, a lot of these things. Yeah, the embolization is funny because they, there are certainly cases where I, we wondered whether or not embolization really even helped. But the, the problem is we all have this uh, bias. So if I would operate on somebody and the bleeding was uncontrollable, but we had embolized, I would say, well, thank God we embolized because it really would have been bad. But, but in actuality, I'm not sure if it really helped. And, and, uh, and the opposite is true. I've operated on very vascular tumors that we didn't have the time to do an embolization. It didn't bleed at all. So again, it's, it's hard to know sometimes what, what, the, what the right Just answer is. Just takes one epidural vein. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> So you became chair of Mass General in 2017. You know that's a huge job, uh, and and you you've seen a lot now. You've been been the chair for five years, and you've seen a lot of changes within the institution, also in academic medical centers uh, across the country. What's been the experience like, and where do you see academic medical centers going? Where, where, what are the trends? Yeah, that's a that's a wrapped up question. So. My first interest in leadership came when I moved from New Orleans to Wake, and I recognized that you have the unique opportunity when you switch jobs to pare away some of your foibles and start start over. And I took a course there and really found the whole concept of leadership to be, you know, intoxicating. It's so important in everything we do, communication and self-awareness and emotional intelligence, and yet none of us have ever really been taught that or even thought to study it. And so subsequent to that, I, I really started getting interested more and more in leadership. And when I came to the Brigham, part of my package was to get involved with leadership at the, at the hospital level. And I had this really unique opportunity to help develop a leadership program at the Harvard Business School in combination with uh, the Brigham's uh, physician organization. So once I started doing that and seeing all these other opportunities within leadership, I thought this would be the time to really put my name in for chairmanship. At this point, I still had not looked outside of just departmental leadership. I, I just wanted to build a team and surround myself with people that would be fun and, and pushing the envelope. So I put my name in for a couple of chair positions, only to find out that just shy or not even in the ballpark, but got in the game to see what it was about. And then when the job came up at the general, I mean, it's interesting, the storied relationship between the two institutions, even though they're under the same corporate governance, is such that it would be almost unheard of from somebody from the Brigham to take over a chair job at Mass General, whereas it was not that uncommon for someone from the general to come over to the Brigham because it was the younger sibling type of relationship. So it was an outside shot. I got the opportunity, and it, it's been really great and really challenging. When you're put in that position, though, you recognize not only do you have your backyard, your department to deal with, but you also have the, the governance of the hospital, and then you start looking at the enterprise. And during the same period of time, our corporate enterprise has been going through huge changes where the system is really further integrated. So the challenges have been to try to create 
and develop and maintain the brand that MGH Orthopedics has always had, which has been an international leader in research and education, as well as accept that there's going to be a blending with the Brigham and that there's some brand confusion when you change it from MGH and the Brigham to MGB. And that's really the new corporate moniker for us. So the biggest challenges to me are creating your team that has a specific brand and identity and personality and culture, and then try to make sure you can blend it and be successful in a bigger enterprise. And that's the importance of having multiple division chiefs that are leaders that have visions and let them run with it. So we've been on our campus, I think we're headed in the right direction. And now what we're trying to do is make sure that we're in a leadership role at the enterprise. At the healthcare level, this is brutal. Uh, you know, between COVID really knocking us on our seat and then all people leaving healthcare in general, it's been a big challenge for us to not only maintain staff, but to maintain interest in a career in medicine when they've seen how disruptive something like COVID has been to everybody's life. Having had a lot of experiences as, as, the, as the chair, what's been the hardest thing, the thing you didn't expect about having such a big leadership job and really having a role in, in many different hospitals because of the position you have? I, you know, I, I think it goes back to interacting with people. I think it, it is all about communication all about being able to look in the mirror and recognizing your own blemishes and your own foibles and being able to figure out how to surround yourself with people that can help you in those areas. And also recognize that healthcare, like everything else, is constantly evolving. There's not right and wrongs and black and whites. And whereas when you're in training and you get into something, you want rules and guardrails. And then as you get older and older, you realize everything's in the gray zone. And so the difficult thing has been to influence without being forceful and to lead without pushing but trying to encourage along the same lines if you could put your arm around your younger self uh say medical student mitch harris what would you advise shut up (laughs) (laughs) i would advise a lot of listening i remember when i first moved to new orleans I couldn't believe how slow the conversations were. And I, and I, I, my first thought was, clearly these people don't have enough to talk about if they're taking that long. And what I realized after a while was they knew that listening was much more important than talking. And what I find myself now is when I'm about to go into a big meeting where there's a lot of things going on, I'll bring a legal pad with me so it'll keep me from talking. I'll write things down and just listen as opposed to talking. So I think if you listen more and talk less and think about where where the message is coming from, it, it's it's a great it's a great message. Broadly speaking, in in the field of orthopedics, where do you think the greatest changes, the greatest advances uh, will be? Biologics. I, I I I just can't believe just in our lifestyle the technology that's changed things. But now I think it's getting to the biologic world. Diagnostics are going to get much better so we can prognosticate. You know, the the concept of using AI for all our treatment algorithms is no longer this pie in the sky. It's it's happening. Every day we recognize now how we can better manage things ahead of time so that we're not caught off guard saying, oh, if only we had known. So I think biologics, which is changing things like cartilage and bone healing and infection, as well as using our data and data science to really direct our, our, our future treatment algorithms. 
So when you say biologics, you know, I know there's a great deal of research in, in biologics. And the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, things like uh, platelet-rich uh, plasma, things of this nature, which, uh, you know, to my mind, there, isn't, there hasn't been a lot of data to support it, but it's being used quite frequently. Is that the type of thing or wh- where, where do you think it's uh, more specifically? Yeah, I mean, I would start with, you know, BMP, which was this unbelievable burst of wonder and yet, when we looked at the data further and further down the line, it hasn't really changed it as much. PRP is another thing. You know, a lot of people use it as a, as a great anti-inflammatory. We don't know the real value of it. So it'd be nice if instead of getting into the snake oil and, and selling it, to really study it before. But everybody wants to get in the game as soon as they can. So the biologics would be things like, how do we get to recreating cartilage? The simple thing of arthritis, if we could recreate cartilage... We, we would extend the life of our joints years and years. Degenerative disc, wh- why can't we figure out a way to stop it from dehydrating and keeping it viscous enough so that over time we don't end up with spinal stenosis and arthritis of the spine? And each one of these, if you look at each one of the specialties, it boils down to if we can reverse or arrest the normal, normal degenerative process, we would have bodies that you know might last longer. Mitch, many people look at the academic medical centers as being uh, based on a three-legged chair. You, you've got clinical care, which, of course, is, is at the, 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 the forefront. But equally important is ed- education and also research. And how do you balance these? You know, the, not, these are not educating residents is, is not cheap, <clears throat> it, and, and research is not cheap. How do you support these efforts, all the while making sure that the clinical effort is whole? I think that's the holy grail right now is the, is the difficulty of maintaining the strength of our educational systems, both in research and training for our future generations, and also being a clinically productive healthcare system. And I think if we have too many uh, academic medical centers, it's a problem. And if we don't have enough, it's going to be a problem. So I think that's something that we're trying to balance. The importance of research in medicine and clinical aspects of it is it's, it drives the change of our treatment. If you just look at the last two years, the amount of research that's gone into COVID so we can understand it and change things, it's miraculous. And, you know, it's another example of when, when faced with adversity, everybody starts coming up with new ideas. So I, I think the balance of the clinician, scientist, and the medical centers being able to provide that is essential. In our department now, we probably have maybe a half a dozen real clinician scientists, including yourself, obviously. But that doesn't mean the clinicians who aren't scientists aren't contributing to some of the questions and answers. And I think what really motivates good research is clinicians saying, I I don't know how to do this, or is there a better way to do it? And then it drives it. My equation for success is putting a basic scientist with a bioengineer and a clinician in a room because each one of them has different approaches to similar problems, and it usually gets to answers in a a more practical and provocative way. The key is, if we keep our eye on the clinical problem, we will drive the research to help us with answers. And so AI is a perfect example. It used to be pie in the sky. Now it's integrated, and we're getting better and better at it. Virtual reality is going to be the next way for us to really do simulation for doing operations before we get into the operating room. So all these things, the technology that's driving us in the education and research field is ultimately helping 
patient care. So between the AI center that you've started, the, some of the VR that we're looking into, and the biologics that the Harris Orthopedic Lab has championed for quite some time are really key areas from my perspective in, a, in our department where we're headed with research. There, there are a lot of people that feel that the future of technical training, <clears throat> and certainly there's an aspect of technical training in orthopedics, the future of that, or at least the gateway to that, is, is not going to happen in the operating rooms. It'll happen in training facilities that you're suggesting and maybe the culmination of, of many of these different modalities. Yeah, I mean, w what's challenging now is the people that are most involved in virtual reality are attached to some implant company as opposed to attached to teaching how to operate. So again, there's the question of where do we get the revenue and the funding to support that, and that's part of the educational mission of the three-legged stool. The, the One of the things that uh, we, I've learned from virtual reality and the, the concept of how do you how do you train someone, and, and I, I only realized it, it seems obvious in retrospect, when someone was asking me, how do I place screws into the spine, and what are the factors that I take into account? And you don't really think about it, you kind of just do it. But one of the things that, that you really think about is the feedback that you're getting, the tactile feedback that you're getting when you're, when you're manipulating an instrument and it's interacting with bone or not interacting with bone. And that tactile feedback is really, really important, and I think not that easy to simulate. Well, yeah, I mean, certainly the the tactile is, is the last horizon, the haptics, I think, is what it's referred to. But I remember the first time I used a navigation system and when I was putting in a pedicle screw, and I was pretty comfortable putting in pedicle screws without it, and the navigation system said, move your hand this different way, and I said, I'm not doing that. Like, I, I, I can't trust this navigation <clears throat> system, and I think that's the other part of it. If you train all the time with navigation systems, You'll never learn how to do it without. So I, th I think there is a gradual learning curve on this, but we have to start incorporating both ways. Yeah, I've, I've uh, people have proposed that perhaps when you're when you're learning in the operating room, you should be using navigation. However, that should only come after you've learned how to place a screw in an open technique, which would be done in cadavers from a safety perspective. As an example, what that costs, right? Those cadavers cost, and who's going to supply the instrumentation, and who's going to train them? All of that time, is there? there's a cost associated with it. Well, I think, but that gets back to technology. We won't need cadavers soon. Yeah. We'll have some kind of virtual reality that will actually, will feel the haptics of it. We'll be able to say all that because it used to be, like you said, you just go to the cadaver lab and it's not so easy to get cadavers anymore. Yeah. In terms of, we, we talked a little bit about research and, and you've given us an idea of where, where you think things are heading. If you could say, hey, this is the one area that I'm most excited about, whether or not it's it's the closest to, to reality or not, what are you most excited about in, term, in terms of research? It's a good question. I, I, I think I get into the soft stuff. I think if we can communicate better as a profession we will, we will advance the profession. There's still silos. There's still areas of research that if we just got the right people in the room, we'd be much more successful, whether it's biologics, whether it's antibiotic resistance, whether it's really deep diving into, uh, into the uh, AI world and, and algorithms. But the point is we're still too siloed. And, and I think if we can break those down, we'll, we'll be more successful. Yeah, if you look at how a, a company might try to solve a problem, they'll put a, a large cadre of people together with different training um, to, to solve a problem. And in healthcare, that, that really doesn't happen, almost ever. You have, may have an idea, but it doesn't go much further than, than your idea because we are siloed. Well, that's the beauty of feral sorb. You know, you have people from diverse backgrounds coming at the same problem 
all different ideas. And if you can create that environment more naturally, you'll be as successful as this has been. No question. I, I think uh, I love the meetings that we have out here uh, in part because I learn a great deal from there. Are, there are many people here that know about things that I have no training at all in. And, and it's been really an eye opener for me. Mitch, I can't thank you enough for being here. It's really been, uh, it's great. I've, I've enjoyed it. Kind of a trip down memory lane. It's some of it I've lived with you. So it's, it's, been, it's been great for me. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you. And I, I want to make sure you recognize how much I appreciate what you've put together here. I know this has taken a lot of effort and creativity, but I think it's showing the value of collaboration across multiple different backgrounds. So thanks for your work. Thank you. I, I wonder, do you have a few minutes where maybe members of our team could ask you some questions? Sure. Great. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. I know that was a a pretty lengthy podcast, but now we're going to swap it over to part two of the episode where Jack and I take over. We're going to do a lot more questioning about the field itself, about orthopedics, about trauma. You know, we also have the the crowd that came with us and we field some really important questions about diversity in the workplace, the importance of increasing the number of women in orthopedics as it is a primarily male-dominated field. We talk about the history of orthopedics and we talk about a lot more. So if you're interested go ahead and hit that second link. This is unfortunately the end of the episode, but as always, Jack and I have left our emails in the description of this episode. Please do not hesitate to reach out if you have any questions for us as medical students, if you have any questions that you would like us to ask on an episode, if there are any specific specialties that we have not done that you would like us to do, or if you know anyone who would like to come on the podcast and give advice to prospective students or two residents or two fellows. Please, please, please reach out. We love you guys. Thank you for supporting and we will see you next episode.